Before we read our verse in 1 Corinthians 1, listen to the words right out of the mouth of Martin Luther. This is in a letter he wrote to Johann von Stoppitz, who was, who was one of his advisors, his supervisors, and this is how he explained his teaching. He said, I teach that people should put their trust in nothing but Christ Jesus alone, not in their prayers, merits, or their own good deeds. Now, doubling back to the Apostle Paul writing here in 1 Corinthians, and I'm so glad we get a chance to look back at this verse. Um, <clears throat> obviously, we as a church just finished teaching through this book, and so to some degree, this is familiar territory. But we didn't spend much time looking at this verse. What I want to draw your attention to is a single verse in chapter 1, verse 30. Read it with me and then we'll pray. And because of him, the pronoun there refers to God, because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We might as well finish the sentence, verse 34. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I know firsthand that this is not just a question of doctrinal correctness. This is about the fountain to which we go when we are thirsty. This is about the answer to which we go when we have problems. This is about how we cope and deal and move forward in the Christian life. And so I pray that you would enlighten us through your word this morning and that we would be able to proclaim not merely with our lips, but with our very hearts that our salvation is in Christ alone. I ask that your spirit would help us in this. In Jesus' name, amen. And so once again here in verse 30, it says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus. Now that phrase alone is probably the most important and the most repeated throughout the New Testament epistles. If you're still getting familiar with the New Testament, it falls into basically two sections. The first part of it is made up of the Gospels and the book of Acts that tell both the story of what Jesus did during his ministry on earth and then what Jesus continued to do through the early years of the church. It's narrative and historical in nature. Now, over the course of that book of Acts, churches were planted and letters were written from church planters to churches, um, from church planters to individuals, and that makes up what we call the New Testament epistles. In fact, even the book of Revelation falls into that category. If you read the first three chapters closely, you'll notice that John is recording this vision for seven churches, right? Now, <clears throat> theologically, what we have in those two sections of the New Testament is the what and then the explanation. This is what God has done in Jesus Christ, and then what follows is God's explanation in the epistles. And so we have the record of Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospels. We have an explanation of that crucifixion in the epistles. And this follows up with the character of God as he reveals himself in Scripture. God begins by saying, let me tell you what I'm going to do. He proclaims in advance. He says, here is my plan. These are the promises I'm making. These are the prophecies. In fact, if you look in Isaiah, Isaiah in chapter 40 makes that the earmark of the fact that the God we worship is the one true God because he declares the end from the beginning. He asks in another one of the prophets, what do I do without proclaiming it to the prophets first? So God says what he's going to do, and then he does it. But he doesn't leave that event uninterpreted. The Bible doesn't just record happenings and leaves us to figure out what they mean. God always follows up and goes, now let me explain what I just did. And so if you read in the Old Testament about the Exodus, as God takes Israel out of the land, he says, I'm going to do it. All the way back 400 years prior to Abraham, their predecessor, he says, your descendants will fall into slavery in a land, but I will, by miraculous power, deliver them out. And then in the opening chapters of the book of Exodus, we watch as he does so. And then as soon as they're out of the desert, he begins to explain and say, now let me tell you what this means. It means that now I am 
your God and you are my people. It means that you are my children and I have called you out unto myself, right? He doesn't leave the facts uninterpreted. And so when we read (coughs) the New Testament epistles, it explains the why. It tells us the how. Um, It gives us the moving parts of what this means for us. In the Gospels, we see the death of Jesus Christ. In the epistles, we see our death in Jesus Christ. And so the repeated refrain throughout the epistles over and over again is our reality as Christians is not merely followers of Christ, not merely those who believe in Christ, but those who are in Christ. Think of it illustratively um, like a letter and a book. Okay, There is a letter and a book, and I put the letter in the book. Now, the fate of the letter is bound up in the fate of the book. If I leave the book on the train, so also the letter. That's what the New Testament is getting at when it says that we're in Christ. It means that we have been grafted into his fate. It means, like Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches and you are now connected with that new source of life. It means that your identity is now found inscribed in him. It means your security is now as secure as the identity of Jesus Christ. And so the emphasis, the importance of in Christ alone is because that alone is where the existence of the Christian life is lived, in Christ. But I want you to notice what he says here. He says, not only are we in Christ Jesus, but it says that through God, Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, there's a sense, as we'll see this morning, that those terms are relatively exhaustive for explaining salvation in Jesus Christ. They really cover all of the bases. Wisdom gives us a broad principle, and then when we use righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, we have a chronological arrangement of all that God has for us in Christ. But in another way, stepping into a different lens, we could easily add other words to this list. Because the Bible spends these epistles explaining what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, it uses many, many different words to do so. Many different lenses to view that through. And so here we have sanctification, we have righteousness, we have uh, redemption, but we could add to the list justification, that we've been forgiven. We could add to the list propitiation, that in Christ God's wrath has been satisfied. We could add expiation, which means that we have now been made clean and are no longer unclean. On top of that, we could add the, the idea of victory, That now we have triumphed over the powers and principalities in Christ. And so there's a sense where these words are not exhaustive. And so it would be helpful to remind us of what Paul writes in another one of his letters, in Ephesians chapter 1, when he says, um, Blessed be God the Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Where? In Christ Jesus. And then as he goes on in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he starts to unpack the ins, the the list, the blessings themselves. But this morning I just want to look at these four, and we'll do them one by one. First, look at the first one. He says, who became to us wisdom from God. Now, the grammar there is important. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say merely that Jesus became to us a source of wisdom from God. Paul doesn't merely proclaim Jesus here as a God-sent teacher, a place to find wisdom, a guru uh, who we can sit at his feet and learn and find in his teachings everything we need for life and godliness. No, he says something way more profound. He says that Christ is our wisdom. What does that mean? Before we answer that, it's worth putting this verse back in its context. If you've been with our church long enough to remember when we went through the first few chapters of Corinthians, you'll remember that the church in Corinth was obsessed with wisdom. In 15 verses over the course of chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul uses the word uh, well over 20 times. It's a major theme in this section. And what had happened in the church in Corinth is they were captivated, as was the culture outside the church in Corinth, by wise teachers, eloquent speakers, those who would come and present their philosophies that would answer answer the major questions, not merely of what is the meaning of life, but how can I live a meaningful life? 
And so he is challenging that in this book directly. He says that the wisdom that you're obsessed with, the wisdom that God is going to call foolish, and he's going to demonstrate his foolishness. He says that it's worthless and unhelpful. In fact, he tells us that as he spent his time planting the church in Corinth, he refused to play by the rules of rhetoric. He literally dumbed down his teaching and bit his tongue and didn't manifest his own intelligence and ability. In fact, notice what he tells us at the beginning of chapter 2, just after the verse we read this morning. He says, chapter 2, verse 1, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so he comes and he intentionally says, I have only one thing to talk about. Specifically, I have only one person to talk about. And not only that, it's an offensive message because it's Jesus Christ and him crucified, which he says earlier in chapter 1 is offensive to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. And so he carries this message that seems like foolishness, but he says, I have only one thing to talk about. I have only one message. I have only one focal point, Jesus Christ and him crucified. When it says here that Jesus has become to us wisdom from God, effectively what Paul says is whatever the question, the answer is Jesus. And I know that that sounds like an oversimplification. It reminds you of children in Sunday school who know that's the best place to begin with answers when they're asked a question, right? I know that it seems like, yes, totally, I believe in Jesus Christ, but what does that have to do with my workplace? What does that have to do with my relationship with my estranged parents? How does that help me deal, you know, with my depression or my addiction? But Paul maintains that Christ was made unto us in and of himself and what he's done, wisdom. The wisdom. Like I said, I think you can properly translate it, the answer. When we say Christ alone, we are recognizing that what God has done for us in Jesus Christ is everything we need for life and godliness. That it's not Jesus and anything you can put on the list. And we may be a little bit different than the... um, than the culture in the days of Corinth, but we're still a culture that is starving for wisdom. Entire industries are built on the backs of answering these questions of how can I solve my problems? How can I find satisfaction? What does it look like? And even the church has fallen prey to this. And so, yes, Jesus makes you a Christian, but here's my uh, you know, pr- uh, proven method to overcome, to encounter this, to whatever it is. And those principles are usually in addition to Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want you to hear an oversimplification here that says that all we need is that simple name of Jesus and all of our troubles go away. I think the reason why this rings so untrue to us oftentimes is not, is not because we've tasted the depths of who Jesus is and found him to be deficient, but because we haven't really encountered the profound depth of what God says is available in Jesus Christ. You see, for a lot of us, our um, <coughs> encounter with Christian or with Christianity uh, has made us think that Jesus is the entry point into Christianity. He's the front door into Christianity. The Gospels is the foundation of Christianity, but then we move on to the deeper things, and we figure out everything else. Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York, puts this in a way that I think is inescapably simple. He just says, don't mistake the gospel for being the ABCs of Christianity. The Bible proclaims that it's the A to Z of Christianity. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul here in the book of Ephesians. <clears throat> he
he's speaking here of the world outside the church in Ephesians chapter 4. What life is like, the way that they live, the way that they value. Um, but he, he talks about them practicing, I'll just pick up on the last line here, every kind of impurity. And he says in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And so he says here that their, uh, their lives are different, their values are different, their focus is different because they have learned Jesus. Now, there's something more profound that you may have missed in this. Not only does he say that Jesus is the subject matter, this is not the way that you learned Christ, but he also says that Jesus is the teacher. It says in verse 21, assuming that you have heard, and most of your translations will say about him, that word has been added for help. I don't think it's helpful. What it literally says here is assuming you have heard him. You see, Paul recognized that when he spoke to the church in Ephesus, he spoke with the authority and the very voice of Jesus himself. That Christ was proclaiming himself in the mouth of Paul. And so Jesus here is not merely the subject, but the teacher. And then he continues and he says um, that you've heard him and were taught in him. That makes Jesus the classroom. Right? We are learning about Christ, from Christ, in Christ is what Paul says. And he challenges the church in Ephesus that says that's sufficient. You don't need to take night classes in another subject. You don't need to find another teacher to finally unpack the secret source of the real power of the Christian life. He says it's all there. It's all available in Jesus Christ. Now that is tremendously practical for us. Because we have a tendency to seek wisdom. To look for every source where it might be found. To overturn every rock. To climb every mountain. To read every book. Looking for the secrets. And what the New Testament would have us to understand is we already have them. And this is not that you don't need teachers. Because the same Paul who says that Christ is our teacher goes on just at the end of this chapter, actually just before this passage, to say that God has given to the church apostles, prophets, and evangelists, and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. But the teacher is not the end game. And if the teacher is not leading you to a deeper understanding of what God has done in Jesus Christ, then he's not doing you any favors. And he's not bringing to you any truth because all wisdom is found in Christ alone. If you're struggling with addiction, that's not going to be overcome by some new regiment of self-control or some mantra that you repeat to yourself. It's not going to be countered um, by some new process or step or program that you go through. All of those things can be helpful as long as what they do is connect you with the reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ. I know that can sound like an oversimplification. The Bible proclaims that although all these things are available in Jesus, it will take our entire lives and then some to plumb the depths of these resources, to learn how to value them. When the Bible says that we are in Christ, it means that you have been given a new identity. And we're getting to know ourselves. We're learning what it looks like. But hiding underneath the surface of your behavior are lies that you believe, are real and true problems caused by sin, is the fact of death and corruption that is part of your human nature. And those things won't be solved with a fresh set of rules or a new perspective. They're only solved in the great solution that deals with death at the heart of the matter in the death of Christ. And so it says here that Christ is our wisdom And when we say Christ alone, it means just that. That wherever you're asking questions, the answers are found in Him. In who He is, in what He's done, in what He's doing, and what He's promised to do in the future. And that doesn't make it any easier. There's lots of work to be done. I'm not telling you that you don't have to mine. I'm telling you where the gold is. Proverbs, which focuses on wisdom, 
begins by personifying wisdom and proclaims wisdom as crying out in the streets and saying, if anyone would want to learn, come and learn of me. Paul here, by calling Jesus Christ our wisdom, is saying he's the one in the streets who's calling. But read sometime as homework. Read Proverbs chapter 2 and you tell me if wisdom is an easy road. He says it's available to all who desire it like silver, who seek it like treasure, who, you know, who by the sweat of their brow find it. That's still true here. When we say sola scriptura, when we talk about in the scriptures alone, what we recognize is this is the book that tells us who Jesus is and who we are in Christ. This is the place that shows us what Jesus has accomplished and what it means for our lives. When we struggle with sin, we're living as though we are slaves. But in Jesus Christ, we are free, and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So Jesus Christ is our wisdom, and the next thing it says here is that He is our righteousness. And the idea here is once again, not merely that Jesus has given us righteousness, but the, that He Himself is our righteousness. Do you, do you understand the difference here? The idea here is not that Jesus had an extra abundance of righteousness and he loaned you some to make up the difference. It's something different. In fact, listen to the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Martin Luther loved this verse. He called it the great exchange. This is what Paul says, <coughs> speaking again years later to the church in Corinth. I'm sorry, what verse is it? 21 is what I want, yeah. I, that verse is split on my Bible, so I'm looking at all of 5, but 21 going, it's not here. Uh, 521, please. Paul says, For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, and so what this recognizes is that there has been an exchange. That what we bring to the exchange is sin. And what Jesus brings to the exchange is righteousness. There's a passage, uh, my phone wasn't behaving this morning, so I can't read it, but I'll paraphrase it. Very early on in Martin Luther's writings, as he was still discovering the heart of Christianity, he was writing to another monk that he loved and he cared about. And he says this, he says, never think yourself so pure to no longer need Jesus because his righteousness is only available to sinners. I've always loved that. But what Paul is saying here is that what we bring to the table is our sin and what God offers in Jesus is our sin and the death that it deserves. And then in exchange, we get the very righteousness of of God. Now, this is what the theologians have always called righteousness by imputation, imputed righteousness. In other words, it's like clothing that you wear. We have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so now, when we stand before God, we stand not in our soiled reality of our sinful selves, but instead clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus. And that can seem very obvious. I see some of you nodding your head, and that's totally appropriate. But in practice, this is very easy to forget. Because when we enter into our prayer time, when we come before God with our needs, even when we come confessing our sin, oftentimes we go looking for some leftover righteousness to make us acceptable. So we think, oh, I've messed up again. I need to set this right. I need to do something about it. I need to up the balance of my righteousness so I can enter in and get a hearing. And Paul says, no, let us boldly enter into the throne room of grace. Why? Because we come clothed fully in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The only righteousness you have to find before God in your life is found in Jesus and so it's not surprising when you come as sinner to the throne. It's part of the deal. It, it's, 
it's fitting and it's natural as long as you come bearing Christ. As long as you come clothed in His righteousness. When we answered our uh, catechism question this morning and it said, why did Jesus have to die? It's appropriate to add to that, why did Jesus have to live? You see, the Reformation talked not merely about Jesus' passive obedience in being willing to die on our behalf for our sins, but also his active obedience, that he actively lived a righteous life, that he could stay, he could say to those he spoke with, I always do the things that please the Father. That he was without sin and lived a life of perfect obedience. And the reason Jesus did that is because we cannot. And so as our head as the one that we are grafted into, he's lived and earned a righteous record and freely through salvation applies that upon us. But we forget that, don't we? We go looking for righteousness elsewhere. We go looking for added righteousness. When we find in ourselves some earmark that we're a better Christian than others or we're more savable than others, when we make a line of demarcation between us and them, we're almost always pointing to some homemade righteousness, which is no real righteousness at all. And so he says here that Christ is our righteousness, and that, that makes us think of, of what the Bible calls justification. It's more than that. Justification is a negative term. It means that our sin is no longer held against us. As we see this morning, this is a positive term. It means not only that, but we've been freely given someone else's righteousness, right? But justification is where the Christian life begins. The imputation of righteousness is where the Christian life begins. And so Paul says, therefore, Romans chapter 5, having been justified in Christ, we have, and then he starts to talk about everything that comes next in the Christian life. But this is where it begins. We have a righteous standing with God. We're adopted into the family because we're no longer alienated by sin. We can boldly enter into the throne room of grace because we come clothed in righteousness. Um, Every benefit of the Christian life begins here, but that's not where Paul ends. He says next, there in chapter 1, that Christ is our sanctification. Now, when we look at the language of Paul, he uses three terms, usually that points to three aspects of the Christian life that we could call beginning, middle, and end. What God has done when you become a Christian, what God is doing in your day-to-day life, and what God will eventually do in heaven. They're all Asian words. Justification, which we just talked about. Sanctification. And then finally, glorification. Sometimes Paul doesn't use the words, but instead he uses the word saved, but he uses it in different tenses. And so he says, you have been saved, justification. You are being saved, sanctification. You will be saved, glorification. Okay? And there's no disconnecting this. It's not... Uh, it's not, I have been justified, I'm hoping God will give me sanctification, and maybe I'll attain to glorification. Paul says in the book of Romans that all those who God has called, he has justified. Those who he's justified, he will glorify, right? It's a, it's a chain. It's all one thing, but the experience is different. One we think of in past terms, one we experience in present, and one we look forward to in the future. But when he says here that Christ is our sanctification, that should be profound for us this morning. It's not just God has justified you, now get to work. It's not just God has put you on the right path, now run the race. Now that's a biblical metaphor. That's something we're called to. Paul looks back on his life and can say with confidence, I've fought the good fight. I've run the race with endurance. There's an aspect to that, but it's not where the heart is. It's not where the center is. The reality here is that Christ himself is our sanctification. I don't know of a book that proclaims this more than Colossians. And I could walk through a lot of Colossians to demonstrate this. I just want to highlight a few things this morning. But to to define sanctification before we do, justification means we're no longer seen as sinners. Sanctification means God is making us righteous. 
Okay, one has to do with the consequence of your sin. The other has to do with this present reality that you're still living and that God wants to create in you righteousness. That he doesn't just want to make you look righteous, he wants to make you in your very nature righteous. Okay? Which the desire for comes with the package of becoming a Christian. God works in us both to will and to do. He gives us new desires And so we no longer want to do the things that we did, and we want to do things we've never wanted to do. But we still know that there's a struggle in that. There's an effort in that. There's questions in that. Sometimes we feel like we're running on a treadmill instead of running a race. We feel all the effort, but we don't see any of the progress. This is what sanctification is talking about. Oftentimes what happens is what began in Christ Jesus, we look for solutions to build upon elsewhere. And so Colossians, like I said, speaks of this. And listen to what Paul says here in Colossians. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Okay, so notice the contrast here. He says there are the philosophies and the empty principles of the world, and then there is the fullness of God in Christ. Those are the two paths that are laid out. The context here, he's talking to those who are already Christians and are trying to figure out how to live the Christian life. And he says, stop turning to principles of the world, to philosophies that are totally natural that anybody could come up with and finding your solution there. But listen to what he says, um, what he says later. Verse 20 of chapter 2. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish or they are used according to human precepts and teachings. And so he says, if you died with Christ, right? That's what it means to be in Christ. What he says here is if Christ is really dead and you are really in Christ, why do you still try and live your life by the rules? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Why do you try and live that life? And then notice what he says in verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping indulgence of the flesh. Here's what he says. He says a lot of the ways we go about trying to overcome sin are just man-made religion. They're just another way. But, but the problem is deeper than not knowing the right thing to do or how to do the right thing. The problem, biblically, is you yourself. And so any life you live out of your identity alone, in you alone, is going to fail. You're just using the same engine that let you down. You're driving the same roads that never got you anywhere. What it says here is your solution is to be found in what you already have. This is why Paul says of his day-to-day life, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now this is only one aspect of sanctification, but this is what we're talking about when we talk about the Holy Spirit. Okay, That God hasn't merely given us forgiveness, but he's also given us himself that the Spirit has come to dwell in us. That gives us a new source of life. Okay. And what happens is two things. For this, you can look at the book of Galatians. One is, even though salvation begins with the Spirit, even though the newness of life begins with the Spirit, even though that's part and parcel of what it means to become a Christian, The Spirit is not something you attain to eventually. It's not a gift that God gives only to special Christians. It's what it means to be saved. That's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, if you have the Spirit, you are the child of God. And anyone who does not have the Spirit is not a child of God. And so the question Paul asked the church in Galatia is, foolish Galatians, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? 
If God made you new in the Spirit of Jesus Christ, do you now need to build on that newness with the old of who you are? With just what you could do all natural? But the second thing that he makes clear is that there's two possibilities available to us. We can walk in the Spirit or we can walk in the flesh. We can do the works of unrighteousness or we can bear the fruit of the Spirit. But do you hear the difference in those two terms? Works is something you make. Chuck Smith, in probably, I think, his best chapter he ever wrote in any book, Chuck Smith was the founder of Calvary Chapel. He says, this is the difference between a factory and an orchard. And the difference matters. When we talk about walking in the Spirit and walking in the flesh, it's not just two equal choices and we just have to make the choice. There's a deeper difference there. Okay, The works of the flesh, we make those. We hand-make them. And sometimes it's like a Frankenstein story. We don't realize what we're making is going to be a monster, but it will be because we made it. Okay, We can't help it. Frankenstein's a man who wants to, as a man, create life, and all he can create is monster. But an orchard is something different. When he talks about us bearing the fruit of the Spirit, is that something that we do? No, it's something that's natural. We don't ever think about trees fighting hard to make fruit. It it flows from them. Remember here, we're not talking about just merely the Holy Spirit, but what the Bible constantly proclaims is the Spirit of Christ. That God Himself is working in us and through us. This is why faith is so important. This is why we'll have to get to sola fide. This is why we'll have to talk about faith alone. Because this is the difference here. One is, this is something I'm doing with Christ or something I'm doing for Christ. The other is, this is something I'm trusting Christ to do. We are literally in two different views of the world in those differences. And when it says here that Christ is our sanctification, it means that we are trusting Christ to make us new. Not just for the first time. Not just in our position before God, but practically in our day-to-day life. And so here's what I'm saying. There is no growing as a Christian, unless you're growing in Christ. Unless you're more in tune and more connected and bearing roots deeper into the reality of who Jesus is. This is how Jesus puts it in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, right? Not if you follow in my footsteps. Not if you just listen to what I'm telling you. If you live in me, if you stay connected, if my life flows through you. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if you're hearing this and the the constant refrain in your mind is, I just don't know what that looks like. I get that. That's why we need one another. That's why we need the Word that unpacks these things. Once again, I'm not saying here what I, I'm not saying here some sort of simplified faith where you just need to pray more. In fact, that's just another work of the flesh. Right? That's what Luther said in the opening quote I read you. Christ alone means trusting in Christ alone and not your works and not your prayers and not the sacraments of the church. But nonetheless here, Christ is our sanctification and so we become more like Christ as we yield more to our identity in Christ. But it doesn't end there. The last word he speaks of in 1 Corinthians is that Christ has become our redemption. Now, I find this kind of surprising because a lot of times the way the New Testament talks about redemption is is from the beginning. It's the opening gate of salvation. It looks at the picture of the Exodus and says, you were slaves and God has brought you out from there. And it generally puts that in the past tense. So it's striking here in this list that Paul is making, he seems to be chronologically speaking and he still puts redemption at the end. We would expect righteousness, sanctification, and glorification. But he says redemption. And I was reading in John Calvin's commentary on this verse last night, and he says, it's best to understand redemption as the first thing that begins in the Christian life and the last thing that finishes. Because redemption is not just forgiveness, it's freedom. I told you about justification, sanctification, and glorification. Another way to view those lenses is your relationship with sin. Justification means that in Jesus Christ you have been freed from the penalty of sin. 
When Jesus drank the cup of the cross, the cup of God's wrath, he drank it to the dregs. For you, there's not a drop left. That's justification. The penalty is no longer yours. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Sanctification is freedom from the power of sin. Meaning that this natural man that you have in you that used to tell you what to do and hold you down and make you do it, you can now overcome in Jesus Christ. And so you can start to have victory over your sin. And that's progressive. Sanctification is progressive. It's not a switch that's thrown, so you never struggle again. Victory in the Christian life looks like fighting and not like a time of peace. Okay? I want to make that clear. The struggle is part of the victory because, let's be honest, dead people don't struggle. Right? Part of being alive is the fact that you fight back. And yeah, maybe your anger still flies off the handle, but do you recognize it when it happens and do you start to respond to it right there? Are you swifter to repent than you used to be? That's sanctification. Guys, you've got to be honest with yourselves. The sin that is wreaking the most havoc in your life and in the relationships you have is not one you know about. God is not finished with you yet. That's why we measure the Christian life not in what have I done or have I not done lately, but when was the last time I repented? Because God knows much deeper sins that you haven't even become aware of yet. You are a work in progress, okay? But that's the way it's designed. So that's sanctification. Justification, freed from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, being freed in progress from the power of sin. Glorification, being freed from the presence of sin. When we talk about victory in the sense of no longer fighting, that's what we call heaven. That's what we call glorification. That's what we call Jesus returning and setting all things new and wiping away every tear. And so when Paul uses redemption here, it's best to look forward to that reality. And here's worth pointing out again that when you cross the finish line, it will not be because Jesus ran the first leg of the relay so quickly that you were able to not break pace and cross the finish line. It will be Jesus who is our redemption. Do you see the difference there? It's not just that God starts our life in Jesus Christ. He completes it. That's why Jesus refers to himself as the author and the finisher of our faith. The beginning and the end. The alpha and the omega. Okay? When we get to the finish line of our life in Christ, we will be fully redeemed. And you can't redeem yourself. Right? Redemption comes not only from this idea of the exodus and what God did, but, but from this concept of slavery, that somebody would purchase your way out of slavery. By definition, slaves can't financially free themselves. Right? And so when he uses redemption as the finish line of the Christian faith here, it's a good reminder for us that what God is going to do, he's going to do for you in Jesus Christ. The big question for us as Christians is what do we need? What do we need to know God? What do we need to live the Christian life? What do we need to finish the Christian life? And when we say Christ alone, we mean that what we need is Jesus and Jesus alone. Just for one last piece of clarification, let's talk about the means of grace. I know that's not a phrase we use very often. We're not a liturgical church. But it's a phrase that the church has used throughout church history to talk about these things that are normal facets of the Christian life, that all Christians should do because they connect us with life. And so prayer, gathering for church, um, uh, uh, fasting, these would all be means of grace. These are the things that Christians are just called to do that are part of the Christian life. Don't mistake those as being the foundation or the basis for God's grace when all they are is the conduit for God's grace. Okay? Why is it that prayer is a good thing? Because when we pray, we join him who ever lives to make intercession with us or for us. Right? We pray in Christ's name, in the name of Christ. We present ourselves and we boldly enter into the throne room of grace because we enter in Jesus Christ. Okay? And so, so it's not, God, I've prayed enough, you should fix this. 
it's a primary way that we connect with who Jesus is and what He's done and is doing and will do is prayer. When we gather to study the Word, our goal is not to give you instructions on how to live your life this week. It's to explain your identity in Jesus Christ. And this is the way that Jesus saw the Scriptures even in the Old Testament. He told those religious leaders of His day, you search the Scriptures, for in them you're looking for life, but it is they that testify of Me. There's life in this book, but not because it's got some um, mantra power or miraculous instruction manual or uh, the only soul virtuous portrayal of moralism. It's because they tell us what God has done in Jesus Christ. When we take communion, we don't do it because in communion we eat of the body of Jesus in some way that gives us the spiritual energy to live the Christian life. We rehearse our identity in Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body that was broken for you. When you eat that meal, it's because you truly have tasted Christ. This is my blood that was shed, and therefore you have the new covenant, which is the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so all of these things we do, not as grounds to prove that God should save us, to demonstrate that we're worthy of God granting us His help or His benefit, but because they put us in connection with Christ, and Christ alone is sufficient for the Christian life. Now, I don't know when I mentioned this thing with Bernie Sanders at the beginning how you felt about that. I know that we're all at different places in our Christianity, and we can recognize that Christians have been at times tremendously intolerant and even violent to those who believe differently. You may be a standard modern postmodern, and you struggle with the exclusivity of Christianity. But when we talk about these things, it's based on this foundation that Christ is not merely another religious teacher. That Jesus is not merely a way to heaven. That what he did is so profound and so unique, it's the only one that even addresses the real problem as the Bible understands it. And it's dealt with it so completely that nothing else is necessary. And nothing else will satisfy I want to read to you a long quote of Jesus Christ, or of, of John Calvin on these things, just to finish. This is from his Institutes. And this is what he says. He says, We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it's of him. If we seek any of the gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in His anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in His dominion. If purity, in His conception. In, if gentleness, in, it appears in His birth. If we seek redemption, it lies in His passion. If acquittal, in His condemnation. If remission of the curse, in His cross. If satisfaction, in His sacrifice. If purification, in His blood. If reconciliation in his descent into hell, if mortification of the flesh in his tomb, if newness of life in his resurrection, if immortality in the same, if an inheritance, the heavenly kingdom, if an entrance to heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment in the power given to him to judge. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Some men not content with him alone are born hither and thither from one hope to another. Even if they concern themselves chiefly with him, they nevertheless stray from the right way in turning some part of their thinking in another direction. Yet such distrust cannot creep in where men have once for all truly known the abundance of his blessing. He talks about those who search here and there for solutions. I don't think that's some people. I think that's all people. One of the great anthems of the Bible is just the little word, remember. We're prone to forget. Like I said, there are battles you don't even know are being waged because you're losing so badly right now. And when you're suddenly aware of what's going on, you're going to feel like you're starting at scratch again. 
And you're going to be asking, do I really have the resources? And the answer is yes. You already have them. You may never have used them in this way. You may never have plumbed them to the depths that a battle like this deserves. But you have, as Paul says in Ephesians, every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so, as Calvin encourages us to do, drink deeply from that fountain and no other. Because it is in Christ alone salvation is found. Let's pray. Father, we are masters of the and or the or. Yes, Jesus, or. Yes, Jesus, and. And I pray, Lord, that you would make every false hope we lean on visible for us for what it is. A broken spear that pierces the hand of those who lean on it. A broken pot that holds no water. The self-same problem that got us into this. And I pray, Lord, that we would flee again afresh to the fountain that we would devote our lives to drinking in the reality of who you are and who we are in you. That we would take the lies we believe about ourselves that say, this is just who I am. I can't overcome this. I deserve these things, and so this is how God will treat me. I pray, Lord, that we would trump all of them with the truth of who you are. That we wouldn't even think about our life in terms of our identity. This is who I am. This is what I've done. But we would think our lives in terms of your identity. This is who you are. This is what you've done. I pray, Lord, that we would build on the firm foundation of Christ alone, knowing all other ground is sinking sand. Thank you, Lord, that what you have done for us is fully, completely, and totally sufficient. That everything we need, that everything we long for, that every struggle we face, that every problem we have, that every question we have, you have answered fully and totally and completely in Jesus Christ. What a gift you have given us in the giving of your Son. Be with us today and this week in Jesus' name. Amen.